Good evening. It's, it's good to be here. I don't normally be somewhere else in the morning, so it's, I feel like I'm showing up halfway through the day when I only come to an evening service. I had to smile this morning when I was down at, at Ravenhill Presbyterian because I arrived to find the front gates of the church locked, and I thought, I hope I've got this right, um, and, a, and a sign up to say that they were meeting in their church hall. So their boiler breakdown is the mirror image of ours. Our hall boiler is broken and our church works. Their church boiler was broken and their halls were working. So I can see a partnership developing here uh, between the two congregations. Folks, we're going to come in a moment and look at this chapter that we've just read together. It talks of events around about 3,000 years ago. Um, And that's quite a long time ago. Uh, We need to be clear that when we read a passage like this, interesting though the stories are, we need to be clear that that God speaks uh, when we read something like this, that this is his word and that he has something new and fresh to say to us this evening. So let's let's pray and just invite God to, to speak in that way. Father God, we come this evening before an ancient passage, an ancient part of your word. And yet we believe that because it's your living word, that it can be a word for today and for tomorrow, a word for our present and one that shapes our future. It can only be that if you come and speak to us. So we pray that you would do that. Come and, uh, and speak to us by your spirit. Impress your word on our hearts. Amen. These aren't particularly easy times for Christians uh, living in the UK. Uh, We've had falling church attendances, declining statistics there for for quite a while, but I'm thinking of some of the more more immediate uh, difficulties that the church is facing. Uh, I'm thinking of, for example, the new atheism, uh, very vocally uh, expressed just in the last few years by the likes of Richard Dawkins. I'm thinking of how Christians are being denied civil liberties in ways that even a few years ago we would have found surprising. You'll remember that, that, that scenario a couple of years ago where a Christian employee was disciplined for wearing a cross in the workplace. On Monday of this past week, a motion was before the House of Lords that sought to reduce the amount of control that churches would have over the kind of appointments that they would make. Uh, staff appointments, for example. So, if you, if you imagine we're appointing a youth worker in the church, if this legislation had gone through uh, the House of Lords, then we wouldn't have been able to say that that person uh, must uh, agree with our particular ethos, say, in the area of their, their sexual conduct, uh, their, their sexual ethics, we wouldn't have been able to require that that person lives a lifestyle in keeping with what the Bible teaches. Up until now, churches have been able to do that. But if this piece of legislation had been passed, then then they would have lost that right. Thankfully, that was not ratified by the House of Lords this week. But it was another indicator another warning sign that these are not easy times 
uh, for Christian people living in the, in the United Kingdom. And as we look into the future, we don't see much reason, I don't think, to see that it's going to get any easier anytime soon. These are, are difficult times to be God's people in our country. When we come to our passage this evening, we come to the worst of times in Israel, not just a difficult time, uh, the worst of times. The seventh king of the divided Israel is a guy called Ahab, and we're told in chapter 16, verse 30, that he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And that includes Jeroboam. If you were here last week, we, we had a pretty depressing catalog of kings of Israel one worse than the, the, the one who'd gone before. But here we've reached rock bottom, we're told. Ahab did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any before him. We're told that Ahab not only commits the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but that he adds to them. He also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. So Ahab's capacity for sin is pretty boundless. He, he, he just does, does it all. Let me remind you very quickly this evening what the overarching theme of this book of Kings is. It's that God is in control, that he's sovereign, that no matter which king happens to be in control of Israel or Judah, God has the final say. He is the true king. And the narrator shown us that in these last chapters. David's house stands firm even when judgment must fall on Solomon. That's what Nathan had promised way back in chapter two, 7 of 2 Samuel. Jeroboam's house is destroyed just as Ahijah the prophet had predicted in 1 Kings 14. Judah experiences political stability. That's what Nathan and Ahijah had both prophesied. Israel, in contrast, their royal families come and go as the prophets announce their doom. So it's no coincidence then that the final verse of chapter 16, it speaks of the fulfillment of a very long-standing prophecy. To, to see what era the, the prophecy arose, we need to go way back to the time when the people were entering the land, uh, when Joshua was their leader. Whenever the people entered, and you'll remember the famous story of the walls of Jericho, Joshua pronounced a curse on anyone who would try to rebuild Jericho. Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. He says, Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son will he lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest will he set up its gates. I think the reason the narrator makes a point of this is to remind us of the long-term sovereignty of God. That His promises, even when they're decades and centuries old, if they're not yet fulfilled, the moment will always come when they are fulfilled. So for the attentive reader of Kings, it's beyond question by now. God is in control. So what's God going to do? 
whenever this most evil king of all ends up on this throne, whenever the nation are drawn into worshiping Baal and oppressing uh, the people, well, God does what he's done so many times before and so many times since. He raises up a rescuer, somebody to, to lift the people from where they are in idolatry and oppression. So what we find here is that the most sinful of Israel's kings meets with the most powerful of Israel's prophets. Ahab becomes the the reason for God to raise Elijah. Top of Elijah's job description, if he had had a contract to sign, if he had a, a job description presented to him before interview, the first bullet point on his job description is to tackle Baal worship which Ahab has introduced to Israel. He he needs to do this if he's going to demonstrate that God is the only true God after all. So in chapter 17 here, we're going to see evidence that Elijah's God, Yahweh, is the boss and that he can easily put Baal in his place. And by the way, Elijah's name gives us a bit of a clue regarding his mission. His name simply means the Lord is God. So let's, let's get into the story here quickly and, and remind ourselves of some of these things that we've read about. <coughs> Elijah slipping into Baal worship. What's the first thing? Or Israel, sorry. Did I say Elijah? I hope, he, I hope he's not slipping into Baal worship. Israel is slipping into Baal worship. And what does Elijah do about it? It's kind of weird. He goes, visits Ahab, and says, Ahab, there's going to be a drought. Why does he do that? Well, in Canaanite religion, Baal is the rain god. He's the one who has control over the rain. Whenever it was raining, the people would look at the rain falling and say, yes, Baal's in good health, he's doing well, and he's blessing us. If there was a drought for any reason, then they explained it like this. They would say that that Baal, for a period, was falling in under the control of another god called Mot. Uh, It was really the death god. So death had Baal in its clutches, and for so long as that was the case, there was no rain until finally Baal escaped the clutches of death uh, and the rain began to fall again. So this is the, the worldview of the people of Israel as they slide into to Baal worship. Elijah sees it differently. He worships a single God who lives, and even while he lives, he controls whether the rain falls or whether it doesn't. It's Yahweh and not Baal who brings fertility to the, the countryside. It's his presence in judgment. It's not his death It's not his absence and death that leads to this drought. So God is in control. That's demonstrated then in these following verses. Whenever you've pronounced a a drought before a king like Ahab, you're wise to take yourself off. And we'll see that as we get to know Ahab better, Ahab and Jezebel. But, But that's exactly what Elijah does. He makes a journey from Samaria, from civilization in the city, 
and he goes to an inhospitable uh, part of the uh, area east of the Jordan River. God brings him to the Kerith Ravine. Now, there's no food supply here. There's nothing. So God saves Elijah from Ahab, but then brings him to a place where he's going to die of starvation. And it's here that we see, of course, that God's control isn't limited to rain, but he can control the whole of the natural order. Once he fed a whole nation with meat and bread in the desert, now it's just one man who again has meat and bread uh, as the ravens bring it to him. God is in control. He can always, always provide. Folks, I wonder if we have any sense of that in our lives today, that God can provide. I sense that we have probably become so self-sufficient, so used to providing for ourselves, that we can easily talk about trusting God oh yes, I'm trusting God for this or I'm trusting God for that, but, but the safety nets are always in place. Elijah had no, no such luxury. He ended up in a place where there was nothing. And then he learned that God is in control and that he can always, always provide for his people. Folks, I sometimes think it would be a great blessing to us if we ended up back in in some sort of scenario where we had to depend on God. And maybe it would be a wiser way of life not to give all of our energy into building our own security, to building God out of our lives, to over-providing for ourselves and our safety and our futures, to allow that God in moments here and there, would provide. This theme then of of God's miraculous provision, it's, it's really the story of the whole chapter. It's developed further with the, the story of the widow in Zarephath that makes up the rest of the chapter. So the drought in the land has been so severe that eventually Elijah's brook there in the Kerith Ravine dries up. Now, now, we need to be clear about what's going on here. God calls Elijah to move on, not because he can't provide for him. The brook's dried up, but we've seen before in the biblical narrative, God can bring water out of a rock if he wants to. Elijah's not moving on because things haven't worked out or, or God's run out of packed lunches for him. Elijah's moving on because it's the right time and God wants him to move on. So in verse 9, God tells him to go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and to stay there. One of the most important disciplines in reading Old Testament narratives is to pay attention to the places where the action unfolds. Now, these place names don't always mean that much to you and I at first glance, uh, and we couldn't really expect that they would. But paying attention to, to the places can reveal 
so much more than, than we would normally get if we missed that. And it's certainly the case in this story here in Sidon. Elijah's visit to Sidon takes on a whole new significance when we realize that Sidon is the capital city of Baal worship. This is Baal worship central. Look back to chapter 16, verse 31. We're told that Ahab's wife Jezebel is the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. It's not until Jezebel from Sidon comes to Samaria that Ahab begins his Baal worship. So here we have Elijah. He's fleeing from the Baal-worshipping king and queen of Israel, and God's taking him from Israel into the center of Baal worship, into the lion's den. In these times, there was a widespread acceptance that gods were regional in their jurisdiction. So, for example, Ra was the god in Egypt, Ashtoreth, the goddess of the the Phoenicians, Yahweh, the god of Israel. So each one of them had power in their own region. So here's Elijah with his name and with his message, the Lord is God, and he's going to Sidon, the place where Baal supposedly has power. This is going to be interesting. Folks, we're inclined to smile and uh, maybe ridicule these ancient pagans for this idea of a regional deity. We know that God has every bit as much power when we cross a border uh, as he did uh, on the other side. We know that he's the king uh, as much in the south of Ireland as he is in the north, in Bombay as he is in Ballyhackamore. So we're inclined to to look down on this uh, way of thinking. On reflection... I want to suggest to you that we're still regional about our beliefs in God. We believe perhaps that God's kingdom extends geographically over all the earth. But I wonder whether we believe that it extends equally into all spheres of life. In his introduction to Kings, Eugene Peterson says that God rules not only in our times and places of worship, but in office buildings and in factories, in universities and hospitals, even behind the scenes at pubs and in rock concerts. Now, there's a test of your belief in the complete sovereignty of God. Does God rule in the point this evening? And if so, how? Does he rule in the bookies just across the road and down the road in Ballyhackamore? Is he really in charge of your workplace? Folks, we're regional in where we accept that God is in full control. And yet the, the unrelenting message of the Bible is that God is in control everywhere all of the time. This is the crazy notion that we're being asked to believe here in the book of Kings. God rules. God is in charge despite appearances to the contrary. Everywhere. 
and all of the time. So Elijah is being sent to Zarephath. He meets a a widow. God's commanded her to supply Elijah with food. Uh, And it just seems like he's chosen the least likely person of all. She's somebody who who wants to, to believe in God, wants to recognize his existence. Look at verse 12. As surely as the Lord lives. But she is preparing to die. God might be alive, but she is preparing her last meal for herself and her son. How can she help Elijah? Well, Elijah's beginning to learn to trust God. He's seen God feeding starving people before. So he says to the woman, don't be afraid. Folks, if you ever took a highlighter and went through the Bible underlining or highlighting all those places where God or the messenger of God greets people and the first thing he says is, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. This is what God wants. He wants us to learn to trust him and not to fear. Elijah persuades the woman to take a a huge step of faith. I think he persuades her to go against every natural instinct that she has. A mother would want to do everything she can for her son, but but Elijah persuades her to, to give him something to eat. And she does it, and she and her family are blessed. We read in verse 15 that there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. So far in our passage, we have seen the threat of death twice overcome. Elijah in Kerith, and here Elijah and the woman and her son in Sidon. God seems to be able to step in and to prevent people from from dying when they're, they're facing starvation he seems able to to step in and to prevent that from happening. But when death finally comes to the widow's family, we're faced with a different scenario. Both Elijah and the widow recognize God's role in this. The widow speaks about it in a roundabout way. She blames Elijah for reminding God of her sin. And you wouldn't really see that in the translation in the NIV in verse 18. The Hebrew is better translated, did you come to bring remembrance, bring to remembrance my sin and kill my son? She's sort of saying, Elijah, until you came here, I was under God's radar. He hadn't seen me, he hadn't remembered my sin, but now your coming here has reminded God of, of me and of my sin, and that's caused my son's death. She's clearly confused about what's happening here, but she knows that God is at work somehow. Elijah, on the other hand, he speaks directly to God and he's frustrated with God for letting this boy die. But finally, the biggest difference between the two of them is that the woman thinks that's the end of it. Elijah doesn't. So here we have the ultimate test of Yahweh's authority. If you're talking about the sovereignty of God, 
here's a moment for God to prove it. It's one thing to rescue people from the jaws of death when they're hungry in a, in a ravine or in a pagan city. But can Yahweh do anything once death has already swallowed its victim up? He can act across a border. We've seen that from, from Israel to Sidon. Can he cross the final border? That border that we all cross one day, can he cross to the other side and bring a person back from death? Elijah knows the answer, even if this woman doesn't. He prays and the boy's restored. Nothing, nothing is beyond Yahweh. He is in absolute and total control. He can storm death itself, the stronghold, and rescue those imprisoned there. Folks, in this story, I'm sure you see it, we're getting a very real foreshadowing of Jesus. Three times, Jesus exercised the same power that God has given Elijah here. He did it with Jairus, his daughter, maybe slightly lit west, slightly less well-known. He did it with the son of a widow in Nain. And then he did it with his own friend, Lazarus. Jesus is the death slayer. Jesus takes the final enemy of God's people and he crushes it. By his own death and resurrection, Jesus puts death to death. Folks, I'm not sure that we have begun to grasp how, how life-changing this is. Do you know that we live in a culture that's absolutely terrified of death? We live in a culture where we're so afraid of death that we're afraid even to age because we know that aging will bring us closer to death. So we'll exercise like rats on a wheel and we'll, we'll buy expensive products to keep ourselves looking younger. We'll do anything to deny that we're aging and that we're on this journey to death because we're terrified of death. Folks, death's dead. It's over. When Jesus died on the cross and when he rose three days later, God's word tells us he was the first fruits. He was the first of those who will come after him, those who trust in him. Folks, I'm looking around. Some of you might be at a stage in life where you think more in these things than others. I don't care what age you are. You need to think about this. You're not too young to understand that death is defeated. That you needn't fear today or any day in the future. The life that God has for you, he holds. It's secure. Death is dead. Folks, as we come to the end of the chapter, we see that this woman, this pagan woman in Sidon, 
who's had Elijah with her now for some time, she, she's responding in faith. She's seeing God at work. Look at verse 24. Now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. So what's happened here? How's she come to that conclusion? God has validated his prophet's credentials by giving him miraculous powers. And a pagan woman has seen it and believed. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to look at the very famous story in chapter 18 where God does this in a much more public way. Elijah's going to be validated before the whole of Israel. Folks, this, this is the part of the chapter actually that struck me most of all and that I wanted to leave with you uh, this evening. It seems to me quite normal in all times and in all places that people who don't yet believe need to see something to allow them to believe the good news of God. So here in Sidon, God gives this woman reasons to believe that Elijah is from God and that his message is God's message. God validates his, his message with these powerful deeds. That's what God did in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus became someone whose words were validated by his deeds. His deeds gave testimony that he was who he said he was. They demonstrated that he had the power of God working in him. And it's the same of the early apostles. We read in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time in Iconium speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. So whenever God's word is preached, God works in power alongside it to validate the, the message and the preacher. Friends, all of this got me thinking. Have we given up expecting God to work in power? To validate his word before the, the people who live around and about here? Folks, I don't know about signs and wonders. I, I have no idea what God would choose to do through us if we, we offered ourselves to him in this way. But I do believe this. I believe that now, as in the time of Elijah and of Jesus and of the early apostles, that people need a reason to believe the message of God's grace. They need to see ordinary people living extraordinary lives. They need to see us living in the power of God's Holy Spirit. Maybe we're dubious about whether we can have any impact beyond these walls. As our church community and change process comes to fruition here, as we begin new ventures of Christian witness in our parish, you might be wondering whether there's any point. Folks, I believe that, that God wants us to be people who are powerful 
in word and in deed, in deed and in word. I believe that he's most glorified when people who speak of him in a big way live for him and act for him in a big way. I believe that that's his desire and his plan that he's revealed to us in Scripture. I wonder, folks, could we start to pray that God would use us powerfully in our neighborhood. And I suppose I want us to, to, to stretch ourselves in our imaginations. I want us to imagine what God could do in us and through us beyond our own strength. We can do some things in the neighborhood. I don't doubt that. But what if we opened ourselves to God and said, Lord, we're willing for you to enter into this, to empower this, to spirit-fill this, to bring glory to yourself through us? What if that became our prayer? Maybe then we'd have the same experience that Elijah had of seeing a person who doesn't know the Lord looking to us and saying, now I know that you are the people of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is true. We now know that everything you've told us about Jesus is true because of the power that God is demonstrating through you. Wouldn't that be a wonderful experience? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to start praying for in these months as we begin to prepare ourselves to engage our community? Pray that God would take ordinary people like us and use us to do extraordinary things for His glory and so that the gospel of Jesus Christ might be heard. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that in the worst of times you show yourself powerful to save. Thank you for that moment in Israel's history where you raised Elijah. Thank you for what we have learned of him already. Lord, we thank you for your willingness to corroborate his message with powerful deeds. Lord, we would love it if you would use us in the same way. Lord, make us courageous in our gospel proclamation. Keep us pointing people to Jesus as the only Savior of the world. But Lord, we pray that as well as that, you would use us powerfully in our deeds. Broaden our horizons. Give us a, a much, much bigger imagination. Show us how we might bring healing powerfully to this community for your glory. Lord, we hardly know what to pray, but we humbly ask that you would use us. We offer ourselves to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.